I'm, I'm kind of coming to the conclusion that it's a bit of an archaic structure for an organization. Um, a, a lot of people talk about wanting to have checks and balances and tensions. And I just, I, I don't think you need those. Hey everyone, and welcome to For the Love of Product, brought to you by the Product Led Alliance. I'll be your host, Tiama Hansen Drury, Chief Product Officer at Mina Technologies and all around passionate product aficionado. Each episode, we'll be looking at the head and the heart behind product-led growth, the passion and the practice of product. And we'll be picking the brains of seasoned CPOs and heads of products, as well as visionary founders and investors getting their inside stories. As part of our pursuit of all things PLG, we recently launched a survey about product data and analytics, which will form the state of product data report. If you're interested in seeing which tools, data sources, and metrics other product people are using, please take part in our research and help create a cross-industry report. Enjoy! Today, we are joined by David Washer, who is CPTO, or the Chief Product and Technology Officer at Zoopla. Welcome, David. It's great to have you here. Great. Thanks for having me, Heather. I've been looking forward to our chat. Awesome. So, um, yeah, let's um, dive straight in. So, to kick things off, can you tell us a bit about your background and your journey to becoming Chief Product and Technology Officer at Zoopla? Yeah, I, I started off um, working at Microsoft as a product manager when I was 20 years old, straight out of university. Um, and uh, yeah, it was before I even really knew what a product manager was, uh, but I just knew that I wanted to work at Microsoft. At the time, Microsoft was the coolest place on the planet to work in tech um, and uh, a great place to learn product. And I spent a long time, in fact, 14 years at Microsoft um, doing various product management roles. Um, before moving to the UK. Um, in the UK, um, I had my first chief product officer role uh, at Moo.com, um, where I got to work with Richard Moross, who's the, the founder of Moo, to develop and create the, the function of product management at Moo. Ultimately, I also took over the engineering team at Moo um, in my time there. Um, then I moved on to TravelX. So TravelX, the, the travel money people, um, they were setting up a new uh, incubation wing for, for digital products. It's a 40-year-old, very successful bricks-and-mortar business, but obviously they deal in banknotes and paper. Uh, and so they were looking for to bring in someone who could create a, effectively a, an engineering and products team um, to develop new digital propositions for their customers. Um, moved on from there to the chief product officer role at Photobox, uh, Photobox is actually a collection of companies, um, the Photobox obviously being one of them, but they also own Moonpig, which is a really cool company. Uh, and they own the German and Spanish versions of Photobox and the Dutch version of Moonpig. Um, and so I was actually the chief product officer there for those five different companies, um, which was really, really incredible experience. Um, and I ultimately hired chief product officers for each of those companies that were reporting to me. And now I'm at Zoopla, uh, which has been an incredibly exciting role. I've been here for 12 months now running product tech, data, and design. Awesome. And so obviously you've you know, been in quite a few product leadership roles. What is your favorite aspect of, of product leadership? And are there any particular career highlights you'd like to mention? Yeah, was, I was, this is a really good question. Um, I think the, the, the most exciting thing about product leadership for me is when you create a team, you hire a team, you create a function, you create a system, and you create a culture that ultimately produces an outcome or a product that I couldn't have come up with myself. 
um, where genuinely the whole is greater than the sum of the parts when I'm surprised and delighted by the work that the team has done. And they, and they, they quite literally have come up with something that had I been the product manager, I wouldn't have done as good a job. Um, and those, those experiences are amazing to see that it's incredibly fulfilling. Um, I think, you know, I think back to the, when we shipped the, the first app at TravelX, um, it was a really crowded space, travel money and currency exchange. And there were a lot of apps out there that looked like um, graphing calculators, frankly, and they were for hardcore currency traders. But we really wanted to appeal to consumers. And the team did some really thoughtful research and came up with an app that was largely about helping people plan a trip because um, that was where people wanted help. Travel money was actually one of the last things that they thought of when they were when it was coming to an international trip, and the team derived those insights from their research. And so they they created this very thoughtful trip about you know how long are you going to be gone, what kind of spender are you, um, and how many people are going, and then we would recommend how much money to take because it's one of those things that people struggle with, certainly outside of kind of Western Europe. Um, and ultimately, the, the the commercial outcomes were amazing because the team didn't try to replicate what was out there. They didn't try to solve the problem of getting the actual currency. That wasn't the main focus. It was actually solving a customer problem, which was planning the trip with the currency, getting your currency being the kind of afterthought and the natural thing to do when you spend all this time in the TravelX app. And it was wildly successful. It was really differentiated in the industry. The team, the kind of team was incredibly proud of the work that they delivered on that. That was a real career highlight for me. Awesome. Thanks. And so in, um, in 2017, you shared some of your um, key career learnings at a Mind the Product event. And for anyone that hasn't seen David's talk, it's on YouTube and well worth a watch, um, informative and entertaining. Um, your top learnings included listen to your customers, but don't watch the competition, but don't be a thief, get paid, but don't worry about getting paid, speed up, establish cost of delay and say no. In yeah. the last three years since you delivered that talk, is there anything else you'd like to add to that list? Well, I mean, the, the thing about that talk was I only covered about half the things I wanted to say. Um, it really, I was limited to 25 minutes. I think I ran about 32 um, ultimately in, in the talk. Um, but I only said half the things that I wanted to say. I mean, I have a lot more to say about product management and what product managers need to do. So there haven't been that many things that have come along in the last three years. I mean, but I mean, certainly... Um, the the thing that I didn't talk about then, and it's much more pertinent now, is uh, resilience. And, and this isn't unique to product management, but I mean, I think product managers are probably um, at the nexus of a lot of challenges right now. I mean, obviously, there's um, a completely different way of working, a completely different way of organizing and motivating teams and getting teams to be aligned and productive and excited about their work. Equally, many companies are being faced with redundancies and furloughs and kind of really demotivating, you know, people, a lot of people watching their friends and colleagues lose their jobs. And, um, and I think now more than ever, the, a, a practice of resilience um, of, you know, I mean, right now, the amplitudes of kind of euphoria and despair are kind of more frequent and, and, and bigger amplitudes than they have been in the last several years as a product manager. And a good product manager, I believe, would view a lot of what's happening now as an opportunity, um, as an opportunity. How can we solve the new problems that are arising? But that would all come out of a practice of, of resilience. Um, and I think that uh, that 
the best product managers are product managers that have practiced and developed the ability to have a very high resilience. And I do believe it's a practice. I don't believe it's a natural trade. I don't believe that um, just people come by it naturally. I do think it's something that you need to invest time in and practice. I, I, I agree. I think resilience is the, the word of 2020. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so obviously we are, um, we're the product-led alliance, so everything we want to talk about always boils down to, to being product-led. What does being product-led mean to you? Well, it's interesting. I was thinking about this because you are the product-led alliance, um, but I, I don't view product-led as the answer to all companies and in all situations. Um, I think I, I view there are companies for whom product-led is the answer. Um, because the product is the thing that you're selling. But for other companies, you might be selling more of a business model and the product is less important, but the model is more important. Something like a comparison shopping site, for example. Um, uh, and, and yet in other companies, you might be selling technology, right? You might be solving technology problems. Um, so for me, product-led means that the, the thing that you're ultimately selling, the, the thing that is solving someone's problem, the thing that you're differentiating on is the product that you produce um, and that you, you know, the company understands that, they invest in it. Product isn't an afterthought. Product isn't a channel, um, but it is the thing that is out there solving people's problems. And so... Following on from that, what role would you say product plays at Zoopla? Would you describe the organization as product-led? We're getting there. I mean, it's, um, Zoopla is a 15-year-old company, um, and it's variously at different times probably been all three of the things I described. Uh, a technology company, um, technology-led, kind of business model-led, or product-led. Uh, very little has happened in the property industry in the last decade. Um, in fact, it's, you know, the property industry is one of the few consumer domains, online consumer domains that you can point to where things really haven't changed. Uh, 10 years ago, people searched for properties based on postcode, price, and number of bedrooms. And that's largely still their experience today. Um, and one of the things that we, 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 want, we want to change that at Zoopla, we've been hiring and staffing up and trying to develop a culture um, I would love to have one of those moments that I described earlier um, uh, with the whole being the sum of the parts, but we want to be, we want this to be a new era of being product led at Zoopla. We're not there yet. Um, it's a company in transition, um, but we're all very aligned um, from the investors to the exec team, all the way through to, you know, people, all of the product managers and the designers and the analysts and the engineers in the company that that's what we want to be. Nice. And as someone who's um, currently going through buying a property, I'm interested to see how how that experience can evolve in the future. Um, uh, yeah, no, it's probably incredibly <laughs> painful and fraught with frustration and anxiety and everything else, especially now. That perfect summary of exactly how the whole experience has yeah. been to date. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, cool. So, in um, obviously, being product led in, involves a degree of you know cross functional collaboration. In your view, what should the relationship be between product teams, marketing teams, sales, and, and customer success in a product-led company? So, again, if we're talking about in a product-led company, right? Because, again, I think that relationship and that sh that might shift depending on whether you're kind of technology-led, business model-led, product-led. Um, we, at Zoopla, we very much try to treat those functions as peer, peer functions. 
Um, because I mean, obviously uh, the product is, is more than just the thing that you hit publish on and ship to customers. It's the experience that people have, you know, in kind of in hearing about it and driving awareness and driving trial usage, retention, you know, driving people to come back, dealing with them when they have an issue. Um, and so I really, in organizations that I run, I try to avoid having certain functions be subservient to others. And a lot of products, I think people find this sometimes confusing. Um, because they may have come from a model where the product manager calls the shots. Um, but we, we try, and this is tricky, right? It's a difficult balance to strike and I've definitely screwed it up in the past. <laughs> um, but we do, I mean, I really try to take an approach where those are peer organizations that are co-creating and co-solving problems. Um, and I think, you know, designers, you know, really good quality designers, and we've hired some incredible designers at Zoopla in the last six months, um, play as much a role in, in leading a product and solving a customer's problem as a product manager or anyone else, or sometimes more of a role equally. I think the most undervalued voice in a company is often somebody coming from customer success. Um, I mean, those are the people at the coalface um, who are talking to customers and dealing with them and getting shouted at all day on behalf of the entire organization in some cases. Um, and they, you know, not only do they have an intimate understanding of what people care about when it comes to the product, but frequently they've chosen that career because they really like helping people and solving their problems. And so um, I, I always welcome and value their voice in the conversation as well. So it's a hard, it's a hard structure to pull off because it requires very mature um, people with very clear roles and responsibilities and very, and very aligned incentives. Um, but when it works, it works really well. Great. And, and I agree with you with the customer success often not getting their voices heard. And I think yeah. now more than ever, their, their role is crucial as many organizations aren't necessarily acquiring exactly. yeah. customers. So I think this is the time for, for those in CS. Yeah. So um, obviously you're CPTO, so wear of um, two hats, um, really. In in a tech or, or startup organization, how do you define the roles of CPO and CTO? And do you think there's still room and need for both? You know, I'm, I, uh, I'm obviously biased because most of the last several roles I've had have been both. Um, and, you know, uh, I've been in, in the photo box. I was very fortunate to have a, a very strong uh, CTO and a great relationship with him. We were... Um, really work well together and we we're fortunate to have that. Um, but I, I, I'm, I'm kind of coming to the conclusion that it's a bit of an archaic structure for an organization. Um, I, a lot of people talk about wanting to have checks and balances and tensions. And I just, I, I don't think you need those um, necessarily um, in a system. I mean, you know, clearly you want to embrace and any organization wants to embrace Kind of understanding the concept of tech debt and then take that into account when you're doing your planning and pay down that debt when it when you accrue too much of it. Um, and I think that's frequently the role that a that a CTO or a tech organization would play in those checks and balances. But if you have really good product managers who understand that, um, then you really don't need that at that level, and it just becomes a layer of kind of an opportunity for misalignment. Um, uh, you know, again, I haven't seen that many CPO, CTO pairings work really well. Um, if you're not a tech led business, I don't know that you need a CTO and like, I'm sure CTOs will hate to hear that. 
Um, but uh, I mean, it's certainly most companies these days, most companies that we work in don't have technology problems. Like most of the technology you can get off the shelf where it's been commoditized by Amazon. Um, and, and at Zoopla, we don't have technology problems. We don't have, we're not deep mind at Google, right? We're not um, Palantir. We're not, you know, do, we're not doing, you know, we're not doing 50,000 transactions a second, um, you know, globally. Um, and so our challenges are really around identifying the needs of the customers and then delivering them quickly. Um, so I don't think the day that you necessarily need both. Um, I, I advise a lot of companies and I advise a lot of companies where it, there's a CTO and the product team reports into the CTO. And I think in a tech led organization or perhaps in an earlier stage company where the, the main hurdles they're trying to get past are around getting the tech up and running, that model works. Um, but I don't, I haven't seen the real, the benefits of having both in the checks and balances work, work themselves out. Um, I mean, I think, and again, it's easy for me to say, but I mean, if there are any issues or any tensions or any unresolved, you know, misalignments, that's, that's my own schizophrenia uh, <laughs> in the role. Um, and I think it's one of the things that our CEO values. You know, he, he was very clear. He doesn't want to arbitrate, you know, disagreements between a CPO and a CTO. Um, and he doesn't have to. Um, that's now become my role in running all of those functions to do that. So. Nice. And um, another kind of comparison question um, coming up as well. Um, as we've learned, um, you've worked in both, um, well, in product, in both B2B and B2C environments. Do you think there are any kind of fundamental differences between product management in B2B versus B2C? Yes. Yeah, massively. Um, I mean, the, the fundamental skill sets, I think, are the same, but I think the where you need to spend your time and and, and the problems you need to solve perhaps are slightly different. Um, obviously, when, when you have a B2B context, you, the people that are using the product aren't necessarily the people making the purchasing decision, aren't necessarily the people implementing the product. There are many other kind of actors or well, what you might call job executors, if you're a job, jobs to be done nerd like me, um, out there that you need to serve as a product manager that aren't necessarily the end user of the product. Um, so, you you know, how people adopt a product, um, how they implement it, how they use it, how they, they measure it. Those are all things that on a consumer facing kind of B2C product, you might not need to consider. Um, but in a B2B context, you do. Um, equally, in a B2B context, you have far fewer um, opportunities to test and learn because sales, the sales cycles are frequently a lot longer, a lot more arduous, and those kind of cycle times, you know, of when you can put new product in front of new customers and test it and see the results are, are fewer and further between. And also the volume um, of, a, of a B2B business might be a lot smaller um, in user terms. You know, at Zoopla, we get, you know, 60, 70, 80 million visitors a month to our portal. Um, we also have an entire B2B business at Zoopla um, and when we were recently talking about our implementation of Optimizely and how we're going to approach multivariate testing, um, it's just it's, it's going to take a lot longer to get statistical significance on the B2B side because we have many fewer se sessions. Um, and so an A-B test on the B2B side might take a month, whereas on our B2B side, it might take three days. 
Um, so those all change how you work and how you use data and how you test with users. Um, so I think it's, it's quite different. The core skills, understanding the customer, all those things being analytical are the same. Um, but the, the, how you deploy them and being aware of the overall context is different. Nice. And so um, obviously it's been a strange year for, for everyone and, um, you know, everyone's bored of talking about COVID, but I'm, I'm really interested to, to learn kind of how the, the pandemic has impacted Zoopla and, and specifically your product teams as there has been a lot of disruption to the UK property market, both in terms of it being frozen and then I've seen a big surge following um, changes to stamp duty um, requirements. So interested yeah. to hear, yeah, what's your experience been over the last few months? It's, I mean, it's, I feel very fortunate to have gone through it, but it's been incredibly painful. Um, we have been hiring at pace since, since the end of last year. Um, and we didn't stop through, through the pandemic. Um, we are, we have big ambitions in the industry and we're, we're building up a very strong team. So we've now hired and onboarded over 50 people at this point that we've never met in person. Like the joke has become, we're looking forward to everyone getting together so we can see how tall as everybody is um, because we've only ever interacted with our new colleagues on zoom. Um, so that's been incredible because we're trying to build a culture um, and we're trying to onboard people from very different companies and industries and, and points in their career um, all in this very strange environment um, so that's been fascinating, and we have to put a lot of effort into that, changing how we interview, changing how we onboard, changing how we kind of um, bring people into the organization. I think the, perhaps the biggest change for me, or a bit more nuanced or a bit smaller, um, I think obviously when you're in tech and product and tech, um, when you're working with engineers um, or in, in any creative pursuit in the, you know, the design team and product and, and data, um, it, you need the, the kind of concept of giving people time and space to do their work has really been upended with COVID because people kind of feel this need to be able to constantly reassure everyone that they're at work doing their work, being interrupted by Zoom calls and Slack messages and everything else. Um, so whereas, you know, my aim is always with an organization with engineers and everything else is if I can get two, two to three hour chunks of uninter uninterrupted productivity for every member of the team, that's winning for me. But that's people have really struggled to do that in COVID because this need to feel connected and be and they're constantly being distracted, feeling guilty, you know, all those kinds of things about being connected because you can't see them in the office. And so we're working on ways of trying to help give people permission to re, you know, reclaim those kind of two, two to three hour chunks of time to go and do their deep thinking and their deep work. I think the, the other thing that's been really interesting is in engineering and product and tech, obviously you, you probably over-index on introverts on the team and, all, and you always have a population of people who are on the spectrum on the team and how they interact on video calls. Um, I, I don't think we're, we were all kind of prepared for or, or, you know, we fully understood it. It's exhausting. It's more exhausting than sitting in a meeting in some cases. Um, and so we've done a few things like give people permission to turn off the video on a Zoom call um, if they find it exhausting. And those kind of small steps have been really interesting, small insights, but I think they've made a big difference for people. 
is really trying to, I mean, at work, we create quiet spaces. We have a room in Zupla's office called a uh, meeting room called the library. It's a very big room. It's very quiet, carpeted floors lined with books. You know, it's got library lights on it and it's kind of a shh. If you go in there and the, the people gravitate, if that's what the kind of environment they need, they gravitate to that space. There really isn't a, an equivalent of that when you're in the Zoom context. And so just this, that time, that minor kind of thing of letting people say, hey, just if, if turn off the, the camera on Zoom, if that, if that helps you work better when you're in a meeting context. I think it's, it helps people feel heard. It helps them feel understood um, and ultimately makes them be, I think, hopefully more productive in the engagement. So there's just, and I think there's a lot of that learning ahead of us still, because this isn't going to change anytime soon. Um, so accommodating the different personality types, the different kind of neurological types of people is, is that kind of nuance is something that we're only now really getting under the skin of, I think, as an industry. Absolutely. There was a couple of things in there that I hadn't even considered, like the exhaustion of different personality types. So, um, yeah, thank you very much for sharing that. And I think you might have kind of already kind of semi-answered uh, my next question already, but what have your biggest takeaways been in regards to remote product management over the last few months? Um, yeah, we, we've touched on a few of these things, um, but I think, you know, it is around um, finding, obviously, exploring ways to get the most out of a team in the remote context and experimenting with things, um, much in the same way that you would if you were physically um, in, a, in an office space. Um, I think the, for me as the leader of the organization, I think one of the biggest challenges has been um, I don't have that sentiment or temperature check of just looking across the, the floor in our office and running into people and seeing how are they looking? You know, do they look, do they look tired? Do they look stressed? Do they look happy? You know, are, do they have issues at home? Are they fighting with someone in the team? Can you see that tension in the floor? Um, who's going to lunch with whom and things like that. Um, you don't have any of those signals and inputs. Um, and so it's really hard to judge the sentiment of the team. And so we've implemented every two weeks, we do a quick sentiment survey, a temperature check, we call it in the team. It's got two questions. Uh, the first is, how's it going? Uh, it's an open-ended text box and you can put in anything you want, personal, you know, personal, professional or otherwise. It's all, it's an anonymous test or anonymous survey. And then secondly, we just say, how's, you know, scale of one to 10, like, how are you feeling right now? And we give people an, op an opportunity to elaborate on their answer if they want to. And um, we've tried to use that as this way of just having some signals um, when it's so opaque, really, right now, seeing people. It's all very, when you see people, it's still very structured. You schedule the Zoom call and people log in and they wait for the meeting to be open and, you know, things like that. Um, and so it's really opaque to see how people are, you know, the humanity uh, uh, of, of your colleagues. And so we're trying to figure out ways to, to replicate that or supplement it in the remote environment. We haven't perfected it, but I mean, I think the, that temperature check has been a good, uh, a good experiment so far, a, su a successful experiment. Yeah, as you, um, as you say, I think it's an ongoing learning curve for all of us. And um, yeah, who knows when we'll all be back in the office together. So I guess yeah. these Got to keep on learning um, the best way to, to engage the team. Um, so 
if, um, and I don't have the power to do this, so I'm sorry, but if hypothetically your work hours were chopped in half, where would you spend your time? I am a, a hyper fanatical calendar nerd. Um, so I often entertain this question on a daily basis. In fact, I think I entertain this question, um, much to the dismay of my colleagues and my assistant. Um, uh, no, I mean, I think I am a huge believer in, you know, the Eisenhower matrix kind of distinguishing between the urgent and the important. And I, uh, I fortunately have been able to set myself up to focus on things frequently that are important. Um, for us at Zoopla right now, the important things are one, recruiting and, and, and staffing up and resourcing the organization to go out and achieve the things that we want to go and do. And that's hugely important. Um, the, the follow on clearly to that is how do you onboard and create an effective, high performing um, culture? Um, and that's a, that doesn't happen by accident. Well, it ha it'll happen whether you are intentional about it or not. <laughs> um, but if you want it to be high performance and everything else, um, you need to be very intentional about it. And that's a significant investment of time and effort. And so I spend a lot, I would spend, you know, a lot of my time on that. And then the third piece would be uh, focusing on the kind of further out time horizons. Um, so kind of six, 12, 18 months. Um, that would all come at the expense of the urgent, right? What's happening today? We've got this issue. This person, you know, is struggling. Um, we're, we're, you know, we keep getting offers rejected from people because we haven't calibrated the compensation right or something like that. Like, you know, so I would, I would definitely step back, focus on the important at, at the, to the, at the expense of the urgent completely. Um, it would be hiring the right people, creating the right culture, and thinking about longer-term time horizons. I mean, and that's how I would spend that limited amount of time. Awesome. Nice. And my, my final question um, is, if you could go back to the start of your career, knowing what you know now, what advice would you give to younger David? <laughs> well, well I, did, I did do the talk on this, but there's an, I have an addition. Um, to it, which maybe was implicit in that talk, which is I spent a lot of my time being a self-righteous, purist product manager <laughs> um, and just walking around saying, I'm going to do what's right for the customer. And I don't, I don't care how we make money or if we make money, like, you know, I'm, I'm going to do what's right for the customer. And I don't care if, you know, that it doesn't make any sense for the company. Um, uh, or even if it degrades performance, you know, commercial performance. Um, and uh, I spent a lot of my career, probably more than I'd like to admit, in that mode. Um, and as I become increasingly accountable for bigger parts of businesses and PLs and things like that, I recognize that, I mean, I appreciate that people always want to keep the, the customer at the forefront. I mean, I, you, know, you know, that's our primary role. Um, but if it isn't balanced with the pragmatic, pragmatic reality that somebody needs to, you know, pay your paycheck <laughs> and that um, then it's less helpful. It's less helpful as a senior leader when I've got somebody in the organization who's behaving that way. And in fact, they, they sometimes become a, just a, a friction point or they increase the drag coefficient of a team um, and, and it becomes a, a sticking point. So I, spent a lot of my time in my career in that mode. And I'm sure I frustrated um, a lot of senior leaders that I worked for. Um, but I'm also a big believer 
in the, the saying, you know, if you're not slightly embarrassed by the person that you were a year ago, then you're not uh, pushing yourself hard enough. So uh, a lot of things I was embarrassed about a year ago, but being self-righteous and a purist product manager isn't one of them. Awesome. Well, I love that piece of advice um, about not about being embarrassed about the person you were a year ago, and I'm I'm going to take that with me the, the rest of my day, the rest of my life. So, <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much um, for answering one of our questions and taking part, David. Um, I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation, um, and I think our listeners will too. So, um, yeah, absolute pleasure to have you. Thank you. Excellent. Great. Thank you, Heather. Thanks so much. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to the podcast, guys. Be sure to share the word of product-led growth far and wide and let your colleagues, friends, family, neighbors, and anyone you think who would like to know that there's a kick-ass product podcast on offer from the product-led audience. If you haven't already, don't forget to sign up to the Slack community and check out all our other great content, upcoming events, and other ways to get involved at productledalliance.com. And let's come back again next time to talk more about the head, the heart, the product.